Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Hello. Today on the show, we are starting our Richard Ramirez four-part series. We are. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this in a sort of somewhat trepidatious way. Yeah. I started doing the research on him, I think, back in October. Mm. It, yeah, October, I think it was. Um, and he is... I, I'm really glad I'm done to, to read about him. <laughs> it's been actually somewhat traumatizing because we clearly we talk a lot about true crime on the show, but this guy, um, and I know we say this about a lot, but he actually is known as being one of the worst for a lot of reasons. So let's re-traumatize you by yeah. talking about it now. Maybe I'm in, maybe I feel more in control by the talking about it rather than reading it for the first time. Cause it's like, like a I'm, reflection instead yeah. of, yeah. Mm -hmm. But he, he's pretty prolific. And, um, so for people who are not as familiar with Richard Ramirez, cause I, I realize that there's a generational piece here and a geographic piece here. Um, so many people who grew up in Los Angeles in the eighties are very familiar, um, or just old enough to know. And cause he did make, you know, nationwide news, but, um, there are many people who kind of, they've heard of his name, but they don't really know as much about him as they might know about Bundy or Manson or Dahmer. Yeah. So, um, Richard Ramirez was an American serial killer, rapist, and burglar. He, uh, he was highly publicized as a home invader and he went on a home invasion crime spree, terrorizing the residents of the greater Los Angeles area and later the residents of San Francisco from June 1984 until August 1985. Whew. I don't know why I feel like I have to prepare so much to talk about him. I think when I started reading about him, I had an idea of who he was. And I, I don't think until I really started reading Philip Carlo's book, which I'm going to introduce right now did I realize how awful his crimes were? Right. Do you remember, I mean, you were here in the 80s. Yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, vaguely. I was really young. Very young, and yeah. So it wasn't, luckily, luckily I had a situation where it wasn't really on my radar. Yeah. I found out later about it and then thought, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you think, you, you always think, oh, that could have been me, or you those kinds of thoughts. I remember being a kid and I was in the Detroit area at the time and I was really young, but I remember hearing on the news and thinking like, wow, someone's coming through people's windows. And right. yeah, I remember that part of it. I don't know that much about him. So yeah. I'm looking forward to learning. Okay. Well, a lot of the information I want to give credit to Philip Carlo's book, the life and crimes of Richard Ramirez, which is where I did a lot of my research. And, um, Philip Carlo actually has done a series of interviews with Ramirez. Um, so he's incredibly well-versed in understanding all of this and goes into a lot of, of depth. As we get into the later episodes, I will give uh, some, you know, we'll, we'll say ahead of time whether something, because it'll get graphic, but yeah. not, not until later. Today we're going to spend some time talking about his childhood and, okay. and also um, we'll start to talk about like the early patterns that we 
as psychologists, therapists, we can notice how maybe he got to where he did mm-hmm. um, and a little bit about his family. So today is, is really just a trajectory of his life leading up to when his crime spree and his murder spree started. Well, I think we've always felt with these series that it was important to it really lay the is. foundation. It really is. There's a context here. So um, so Richard Ramirez was born Ricardo, I believe it's Leva Munoz Ramirez, on February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. So he was the fifth child of Mexican immigrants. Um, Mercedes and Julian Ramirez is uh, his parents. They had three boys together, a girl, and then Richard, who they often called Richie. And Richard's father was born in Carmargo, Mexico. Um, Julian's father, Richard's grandfather, was a very, very serious man who believed in corporal punishment. So Richard's father was, uh, you know, a victim to that as a child. And so as we know, that gets modeled right? And sort of normalized when someone becomes a parent. So the grandfather believed that corporal punishment, incorporal punishment, and would, would beat his children often. So the men in Julian's lineage had a history of explosive tempers. And although Julian promised he would never become violent in his family, or with his family, um, we'll soon find out that he wasn't really able to keep this promise. So Richard's mother early on noticed that all of her boys had the same violent, explosive anger of the Ramirez men. And so I just want to make a really quick comment when we're talking about neurobiology here and, and generational trauma. I'm a firm believer that these, these children, especially the boys, because of the trauma and the lineage, that their executive functioning and their ability to tolerate um, you know, certain stressors was limited due to the abuse, you know, that was passed on and how our brains get rewired. I think we talked about that that. with Kuklinski too. We did. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just important to note that because you're going to, we're going to see this as a pattern as we move into this. So the family moved various times between the States and Mexico during the years of 1950 and 1954. So before Richard was born, Um, the government was conducting nuclear bomb tests in New Mexico So there was an unusual number of birth defects, and Mercedes, the mother, was pregnant with Reuben, the firstborn son, who almost died shortly after birth. And then their second son, Joseph, was born only 11 months apart from Reuben. So that's a lot of stress. My mom actually had my oldest brother, my middle brother, and my youngest brother all within 11 months apart. That is a ton of stress. That is incredibly stressful. And then you add on top of that just the conditions that they were living in Mm -hmm. um, and then the back and forth due due to citizenship and things like that. So a lot of transitioning, a lot of stress on the mother. And we have also talked about how stress can be passed on from the mother to to children in the womb, um, in in utero. So... um, a doctor informed Mercedes and Julian that Joseph's bones were not forming correctly, and he actually had to have several operations um, that were costly to the family. So this was a big stressor early on, was trying to get their son the help they needed without having the funds, the money. So the family was then deported in 1952, despite uh, Mercedes and Julian's children being American, So this put a lot of stress on the family, and Mercedes would give birth to their third son, Robert, during all of this. Mm. So 
deported back to Mexico despite um, the, the children being American. Mom gets pregnant again, not a lot of money. We can already see how this is building up a lot of family stressors. Yeah. So the Ramirez, uh, they were able to move back to El Paso in 1954. The documentation cleared. His mother had been, Ramirez's mother had been exposed to teratogens. So she, she was around toxic fumes while working in a boot factory. And this is a time where they didn't give them masks or any sort of ventilation. So she would stand up in the back of this factory for seven hours a day, five days a week without any ventilation. While pregnant, wow. While pre- I mean, just that alone makes me sick yeah, to think about disgusting. just inhaling that and not at that time knowing, um, I mean, probably knowing that it, didn't feel very good, but not knowing the long-term damage, right? So she began to get dizzy spells, but nobody yet knew that the chemicals were toxic. So in 1955, their fourth child, Ruth, was born. And Ruth will actually end up being a pretty big part in this because she was the only one, as they get older, Ruth was trying to save Richard from himself. And she becomes sort of like a surrogate mother and also um, the the youngest of the four before Richard's born, so the closest to Richard in age. So Mercedes' pregnancy with Richard was by far the most difficult, which I think is really interesting to think about because we now know how he ends up, right? So you think of like this little demon in the womb, right? (laughs) Um, But she was still working at the boot factory when she was pregnant with him, and she was finally told by her doctor that she would have to quit the factory if her baby was going to survive. So clearly now a little bit of time has gone by. Medicine has evolved. And they're like, okay, A plus B is not, this is not good. Um, so she was already five months along with him when she quit. So okay. that's well, well into gesta- gestation. So her body started to reject Richard. And she believed she was going to miscarry or have a child with a lot of birth defects. But he ended up being born healthy and was actually described as a happy child. So no colic, no birth defects, and he was born on February 29th, 1960. I imagine she felt lucky. Yeah, lucky, but also, like, I I can only imagine with the amount of um, trauma she went through carrying him and how difficult the pregnancy was, I wonder if there was any even like postpartum with him. I don't yeah. know. They don't talk about that, but well, and that would be a combination of relief and fear yeah, and for sure sadness and whatever else she was going through. Plus all the acculturative stress. It's just, yep. It's and just... with their oldest son having all the health problems right. and going through all those surgeries. So I'm trying to sort of paraphrase this as we go to have people who are listening sort of keep this uh, trajectory with us to recognize how much this family is caring with them through all of this. Mm-hmm. So um, his mother described Richard as loving and kind, which is really interesting, right? Early on, because a lot of times we think, oh, if someone's a psychopath from early on, we see like a lack of empathy, right? However, um, his sister, like I was saying earlier, Ruth, would become a surrogate mother to him and was very protective and loving. And she was probably one of his biggest protective factors in life and really tried to save him as he uh, progressed into life of crime. So his father starts to become physically abusive and naturally starts to use the corporal punishment. Um, so when Ruben begin, Ruben, who's one of the older brothers starts to bring home bad report cards, Julian or Julian would start to beat him with a water hose and, um, 
And so this was Julian's intent. His intent was to teach him that he must change his ways. But as we know, this, this type of fear-based punishment doesn't work. No. So Richard's, Richard's modeling this, right? So, I mean, he's modeling, he's, this is being modeled to him. He's watching this and they start to talk about how his life is forever changed when he starts to witness his brothers being beaten. He alludes to this in his um, interviews later on. He doesn't go into detail, but he certainly talks about how his childhood, any serial killer's childhood, is a big part of why they become who they become. His father also had um, a lot of anger that he would take out on on himself, which is interesting, not just on the boys, but on himself. So on one occasion, he actually took a hammer and beat his own head until it bled. Mm. So what we know about Richard later on is he be, he becomes incredibly sadistic. He's obsessed with blood. So you think how young he is when this is being introduced to him, right? This sort of physical violence on his own person, so the first time the children had witnessed this kind of rage was in 1963. So he, Richard was only three years old. Yeah. Three years old. So this is pretty much, I mean, he's verbal at this point, but not much, right? Mm-hmm. So he couldn't get a filter um, to, to fit into the engine. The father couldn't get a filter to fit in the engine the way that it should. So he started cursing and then eventually banged his head against the house so hard that blood started running down his face. So this is now a second time that the kids have witnessed this so not only injury to like if if richard's a child he's thinking okay so i get beaten or hit my or my brothers get beaten or hit and then my father also self is self injury injurious yeah which is really a really interesting combo right so richard would end up escaping his father's brutality by staying close to his mother and sister he was actually incredibly bonded with them and his family were devout Catholics. So church for them really served as this protective factor. Um, as the family was now a total of seven people, mm-hmm. his mother and father worked a lot and the children were left with the babysitter. So this left a lot of room for mischief and behavioral problems. So Reuben would then become uh, an addict to sniffing glue. He started early. So again, we have bad grades with this kid. Now, you know, dad is super violent, beating the hell out of him when he brings home bad grades. Mom is working a ton. Um, there's surgeries going on. There's no money. There's acculturative stress, uh, the, all the acculturation stuff going on. Ruth is becoming parentified by taking care of Richard, and now Reuben starts sniffing glue and starts getting into a lot of trouble. So Richard, also known as Ricky, reportedly sustained multiple head injuries at an early age. This is important because we'll talk about how this potentially plays a part in his pathology later. Um, One was at two years old, and the other was at five years old. At the age of two... He was nearly killed by a dresser that fell on top of him. So his mom was at, I think both of his parents were at work and they had a babysitter who stayed at the house. Um, And clearly she has a lot to take care of while she's there with all these kids. It doesn't really go into the quality of this babysitter, what her background was, but he went into the room. He was trying to reach something. 
the dresser falls on top of him and he's completely knocked unconscious. So this results in a concussion that needed 30 stitches after climbing the dresser. Um, oh, it was, he was trying to turn on the radio, okay, trying to turn on gotcha. the radio and he grabbed it and the dresser came down on him and he was so young Yeah, when this happened. Um, so after he was knocked unconscious by a swing at age five, so now this is his second head injury, he began experiencing epileptic fits mm-hmm. in fifth grade. Yeah. And so this affected his ability to play football, and he had to quit. So he was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, which we'll talk about later on in, um, <coughs> in the series, and it'll be relevant later. So um, I just want to pause here for a second and think about football was one of his outlets. Mm-hmm. It was something that allowed him to connect to other kids. Yeah, It made him feel normal. It made him feel a part of something. He became from an incredibly abusive home, neglectful home, stressful home, and now he's diagnosed with this and he can no longer do the one thing that he loves. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I mean, it's zero to five, you know, these, uh, I'm thinking the multiple head injuries, the religious background, the cultural stress, the financial issues, the abuse that's in the family culture. Yeah. It's these it's these recipes that we keep seeing over and over again when we're talking about each uh, person, for sure. <laughs> and the, I know that the epilepsy there or the seizures that started to happen, I I would imagine just uh, maybe not in this particular family, but from the outside, it would solidify brain injuries for me. sure. Yep. You know, like oh, okay, those brain injuries really were profound and they really will have a lasting effect. Absolutely. If you think about a seizure is essentially a lightning storm to the brain. I mean, even mania can cause brain, like, you know, Mm -hmm. small trauma to the brain. So imagine having this type of epilepsy where it's just constant shock to the brain. We don't really know how much that's being affected. Yeah. And then that's further damage. Right. So I think this is a good place to take a break. We're going to come back and talk, get into his adolescence a little bit and play a clip about um, how he describes serial killers are made. Great. We'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi, we're back. I think I mentioned this earlier when we started, but he was, and I, and I keep coming back to this because I think it's interesting how he was described as gentle when mm-hmm. he was a child. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder, well, you don't wonder now that we're getting all this information, but if you go back to that without the information, you wonder how a gentle, happy, loving child can become what he became. Yeah, I mean, I think people think that it, it takes more than even what you've said to to shift somebody's personality. Yeah, and he will later on des- describe himself as evil, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. Um, so he Richard was incredibly protective over his brother, who had a birth defect that we talked about earlier, and his brother was often really bullied. Um, however, he was very active, and he couldn't sit still, Richard. 
So he would keep to himself and sometimes just sit quietly in a chair. So he was, it's like his mind was always somewhere else. And around seven or eight, they started to notice like he would just sort of sit there and kind of stare into space and be in his own head. Um, But it would fluctuate from like being incredibly attention deficit to almost comatose, like sitting there and staring. Now, some of that might have been the seizures, mm-hmm. but but I think it, as I get into this, I think, this is just my analysis of it, is this is where we start to see some of the trauma mm-hmm. happening, okay? Mm-hmm. He would go outside and he'd always play by himself. So if you look at like early child development, you think of the difference between cooperative play versus parallel play. This is a child who really as much as as loving and gentle as he was lacked a sense of relatedness. And we talked about this with Kuklinski as well is it, it was as normal of a childhood as he could have, but there were these environmental factors that didn't help him create a sense of relatedness. So he would go outside and he would, he would um, play by himself. I wonder if he was even capable of parallel play where, People could play next to him, yeah. Or if he would then move himself, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I realize not not capable of collaborative play, which is when yeah. we play together, yeah. like we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but even parallel play, I can imagine someone coming in and just sitting next to him and and him like moving himself away. Yeah, almost just completely like too much detached. stimulus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and he was noted to be really quiet and shy, but he was often found playing a game where he was shooting an enemy. Mm. That was like the major theme. And that could just be being a little boy. Totally. Um, or it could be shooting his father. Internalized rage, yeah. Yeah, right? So I'm going to play this first clip. It's real short. And he talks about how serial killers are made. A serial killer comes about by circumstances and like a, a recipe, poverty, drugs, child abuse, these things, you know, are, contribute to a person, uh, to a person's frustration and anger, and, uh, and uh, at some point in life, he explodes. Yeah, that interview's in a jail, so that's why yeah, it sounds funky. Yeah, it's horrible funky. sound. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting how, you know, he says it, kind of over time and then it explodes because mm-hmm. when we get into that switch um it literally goes from you know he has early signs and he's committing crimes before he gets into his murder sprees but all of a sudden he does get this taste of it and then it really does explode absolutely so um, another really important piece is around the age of seven or eight his brothers had a teacher um who was actually a child predator and his name, a man by the name of Frank McMahon, and he was uh, an obsessed, they labeled him as an obsessed child molester who over the years sexually abused dozens of children who had passed through his classes. Mm. So this was clearly at a time where people did not know how many child molesters were permeating society, mm. right? We didn't really ever think about, oh, if there's a, an adult hanging out with this child and and there's really no reason for it. No one ever really had um, any compass or sort of like 
Well, yeah, because of our media saturation now, we, mm -hmm. it just wasn't in our face all the time. And I think it was also a time where people just kept private about things. Yeah. You know, it was just, we don't know what's going on. It's none of our business. Mm -hmm. So none of the children in his classes ever admitted to what had been done to them because even now it's hard for right. that to happen, let alone in the, you know, 60s or whatever this was. Mm -hmm. uh, so... There was a time where McMahon actually visited the house um, when the Ramirez, when the parents were out of town. I think there, he was coming over to tutor or something. They didn't, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. And there is clear suspicion that Richard was molested by McMahon. His brothers really believe that he was, but Richard denies that it ever happened, which clearly we know how trauma works and mm -hmm. it could be flat out denial because Richard, who he is or was as a sadistic psychopath always needs to be in control and would never admit that something like that could be done to him or he had blocked it out. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes, sometimes we characterize ourselves as being complicit in our own abuse. Mm -hmm. And so, and that might've fit better with his adult narrative of, like I control things and For sure. I, I'm not a victim, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So his brothers believe that he was, they described him as, you know, a cute, a good looking young man, little boy that any child predator would certainly, you know, be attracted to mm -hmm. and want to take advantage of. So um, it was never, it's inconclusive. It's, but they right. believe that it, it definitely. So I think that's an important piece. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just coupled with the abuse um, in the family, the, um, maybe the black and white morals that were happening, mm -hmm. uh, the multiple head injuries, the epilepsy that had started. Um, and just the... Um, the trauma that was obviously manifesting the trauma, in his behavior. Absolutely. And then maybe how it even contributes to the misinterpretation of intimacy, mm -hmm. you know? You bet. Um, so in 1973, Richard's now in seventh grade. This is where his good nature and good grades and good attention all start to shift. So what do we know about seventh grade? How old are we thinking here? It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> He's probably around He's 12. 12. He's 12. So early onset, maybe of adolescence. So you have hormones, you have stuff happening and now there's been more time where he's witnessed mm -hmm. abuse and violence in his home okay but something deeply changes here so what we want to focus on right now is in adolescence sexuality is developing um, and messages around sexuality become imprinted and I, there's a documentary um, on Richard you can find it on YouTube. It's like one of the longest ones that are on there. And the psycho I believe is a psycho forensic psychologist goes into depth about this. And it's really interesting because it's very true. And I work with adolescents and I work on cases like this where um, sexuality, it's it, it, this, whatever happens around this time is really the time it can become imprinted on someone for the rest of their lives. So sexual distortions are not likely the result of maternal figures like some theories might discuss, but actually impair, actually paired associations regarding arousal. So let me, let me explain that in more depth. When we think about fetishes, okay, fetishes are oftentimes a paired associ association with the object 
and the first time someone is sexually aroused. So for example, I'm going to use the most cliche example. A young man is in his bathroom when he's 10 years old and his sister's best friend is in the bedroom next door. He goes down on the floor and looks underneath the door and sees her feet. He knows she's changing her clothing. He might see clothing drop on the floor. He becomes sexually aroused and has his first, you know, experience um, having an erection. His brain has now paired her feet with arousal. This is oftentimes how fetishes will begin, right? So if this is, I'm using that as a very cliche example about foot, foot fetishes, but what this forensic psychologist was talking about is that paired association, and that's what he's referring to. So if Richard was experiencing any sex with violence or receiving messages about sex and violence or arousal coupled with violence, this would be the age that would be imprinted into his adult behavior. Just as he's already probably, I mean, I, I don't want, I'm not even going to say probably, I'm assuming he's already trauma bonded with violence and love. and For sure. And it's going to, this is where it really turns. So the sex and violence are intertwined. His adolescence develops a permanent restructuring of the brain. And this was the tipping point. As an adolescence, adolescent, excuse me, Ramirez was heavily influenced by his older cousin, Miguel, who he referred to as Mike. Uh, Mike had recently returned from fighting in the Vietnam War, and later Mike, Miguel, uh, would be described as a psychopath. Whatever was left of Richard's innocence would be destroyed by this man. So Mike was a Green Beret and excelled in the military with various medals. According to Richard, Miguel had 29 known kills. Pretty aggressive guy. So he would begin to smoke marijuana, with Ramirez. Um, he would talk to him about the torture, rape, and mutilation he had inflicted on several Vietnamese women for fun, um, corroborating these stories with photographic evidence. So he would show pictures to Richard. This is what I did. And these were these women and look at what I did to them. And in some of the pictures, uh, Miguel was holding the head of a decapitated woman. So Richard started to become sexually aroused by seeing this stuff. Um, and then it would be coupled with stories of jungle warfare, rape, and murder. I mean, this is just like, when I was reading this, I'm thinking, my God, this kid's probably 13 years old. Yep. And seeing stuff that nobody, not even adults, should ever be exposed to. No, it's all this early exposure with his compromised brain and all of the influence by his caregivers and the stress that's just in the water in mm-hmm. the family. and the trauma that was already there and then and now we're introducing drugs yeah and then the man he admires is mentoring him yep basically and so when we look we talked about this in bundy a little bit but when we look at how a um sociopath or a psychopath might choose um let's say they they grow up with a even not sorry let me back that up not necessarily a psychopath or a sociopath any child who has authority figures in their lives, um, some might be narcissistic, some might be more codependently oriented, how the child decides who they end up most like will be based on um, how they value that person. So for example, he saw Miguel as very powerful. And so it was like, I want to be that, Mm -hmm. right? Versus 
maybe his mother or someone else. The older sister that was supposedly, you know, really wanting to save him, but. He chose Mike. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike ends up teaching Richard uh, techniques of jungle warfare. So Richard saw his cousin as a hero, like we were just saying. Um, He once said to Richard, having power over life and death was a high, an incredible rush. It was godlike. You, you were a god. Mm. So um, he controlled who lived and died. Mm -hmm. Mike brought back eight shrunken heads from Vietnam, kept them in a battered suitcase under his bed, and he told Richard that he used them as a pillow when he was in Vietnam. Yeah, pretty sick. Kid didn't have a chance. (laughs) Did not have a chance. So shortly after this experience, um, he starts, uh, Richard starts to peep in women's windows. Now he has this curiosity. Yeah. Right? He's seen these naked women. He's seen the sex and violence. So he he becomes Peeping Tom. So this is also when Richard starts worshiping the devil. Okay, which becomes a part of his... Certainly part of his media exposure. Yeah, with the pentagram on his hand and the whole thing. So he starts worshiping the devil at this time, huge part of his identity during his killing spree. So he would spend the night in cemeteries and pray to the devil. But he would also sleep in cemeteries to get away from his father's rage and bad temper. So the cemetery actually became the safe space for him. He was... um, he would leave the house so fast. This is important too. Nobody could ever catch him. He could run so fast, and this plays a part in his capture, mm-hmm. that the second he left the door, uh, left out the door, there was no point in even chasing him. Hmm. And I would imagine that was a survival skill. Yeah. That dad being extremely abusive, he knew how to um, get out. So we're going to play a second clip here, how uh, his friend actually describes Richard from childhood. Richard Ramirez was raised in El Paso, Texas, the youngest of five children born to hardworking, strict parents. Eddie Milam was Richard's best friend back then and remembers when he began to change into a troublemaker. I did start seeing something going wrong with Richard Ramirez. I think what really messed him up was the acid. He would do a lot of acid. The stealing, you know, I noticed the stealing and then started as a peeping thumb and things like that. Ramirez's passion for burglary earned him the nicknames of Ricky the Thief and Fingers. But Eddie knew Ramirez had other serious problems when he was fired from a local hotel. He said he was fired, he was dismissed due to the cause that uh, he, uh, he had tried to molest some two little kids that were going up, up the elevator. By 18, Ramirez was a high school dropout drifting around California. He stayed in Skid Row hotels, never seemed to work, but always had the money to buy cocaine. Friends say the Richard Ramirez they knew didn't date and wasn't the type to commit such heinous crimes. But convicted murderer Martin Kipp, who befriended Ramirez in prison, says he heard another side of the Night Stalker. Richard told me that he needed to associate gruesome violence with sex in order to be completely satisfied. He also told me that he had to violently fantasize about his victims before he could go away sexually gratified. There are desires where if I didn't give in to them, I would be crushed by them. I believe in the, in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world. And uh, in a wicked world, wicked people are born. I'm not going to blame society, my race, or people, or anything. Uh, it, it is up to the individual like myself 
to to keep on knocking on, on whatever door they want to get into. That's an interesting statement, right? Because in right. the other clip, he was talking about how childhood plays such a big part. In this part, it's almost like he's taking accountability for his choices. Yeah, he's all over the place. Yeah, he's. But he was incredibly articulate too. Mm-hmm. If you listen to other these, these uh, are really old clips, so some of the sounds not great. I apologize, but that was one of the things that Carlo said was, and other interviewers would say he could articulate and sounded so intelligent a lot of the time but if you notice it's very rehearsed oh my gosh it's It's the same it's like it's like bundy it's like very scripted yeah it's really interesting so um at age 12 ramirez ends up witnessing his cousin mike murder his wife by shooting her in the head oh boy so here we go right so richard was there when that happened and and so Mm. his parents never knew that he was in the room when it happened. Oh, so wow. so he never got any help because he wasn't supposed to say he was there. So Mike had told him to never tell anyone what had happened, clearly, right? Yeah. Uh, not at all thinking of Richard, only thinking of himself. No, clearly. no, it's abuse in yeah. a different form. So his cousin goes to prison, and after witnessing the murder, this is where Richard starts to change even more drastically. He becomes more withdrawn spends his days getting high and begins to steal. Mm-hmm. So now we're really starting to see this. Um, we're starting to see the stress and the trauma. Well, and it's like the out. violent cousin was, <laughs> it's strange to say it this way, but in some ways a protective factor because if if um, Mike was doing what he was doing and holding the, is the bearer of the violence, then it wasn't on Richard to do it. He right. was just being influenced by it. But as soon as Mike was gone, it was like, now Richard could blossom into yeah. whatever he was going to do the, on his own. Like carry the torch in yeah, a way, right? Yeah. yeah. So transitioning to high school, now we're starting to see a kid who's unkempt, depressed, and he drops out in ninth grade, mm. which you kind of expect. If you're in this field and you see this, you kind of know he's not going to be able to focus on school nor did he care no and socially he would have yeah he would been ineffective a recluse yeah so he starts working at the holiday inn um and he would begin to spy on women there so on one evening he actually sexually assaults and attempts to rape a guest when her husband walks in um beats the living crap out of richard and uh they get so freaked out that they drop the charges and just they just want to leave El Paso, oh. so they leave. So here's the here's the problem with that is the lack of punishment mm-hmm. was the beginning of the proof that he had these extraordinary powers and yeah. that the devil was protecting him. Yeah, it emboldened him. I'm yep. sure. Yeah. So it fed his delusions because all the way I'm not going as much into the devil worshiping stuff, but throughout high school and all of the stuff we're talking about, he really believes that he's at the service of Satan and that Satan's going to protect him and he's carrying out this mission. And this is a perfect example of, well, look what I just got away with. It's certainly because, you know, Satan's protecting me and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. That was his way of saying, like, I didn't just get away with something. This was actually fated to happen yeah. to me. Yeah. So he leaves for the summer, and he goes to visit his brother in L.A., and he becomes obsessed with L.A. culture mm-hmm. um, regarding the ease of getting prostitutes, finding triple X movie houses. Um, this was a time where this was all over the city. He felt like L.A. made him feel normal 
about the hardcore sexual fantasies he'd been having for so long. Because mm-hmm. he could get it. It was easy access. Very different than El Paso, Texas. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He would be approached by men in very expensive suits looking for sex. Um, and this is where he realized how many sexual deviants hid in plain sight. Mm-hmm. It normalized it for him. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. if you think about it, so he moves to L.A. at 22. Mm-hmm. So he, it's 1982. Mm-hmm. So it's solidly the 80s. Well, this is before he moved. Oh, oh, this oh, is oh. just This is high school still when he's visiting his brother there. He hasn't moved oh, okay. yet. Okay. Um, so probably the 70s. So late 70s. Yeah. All right. So, um, but yeah, this is where he starts to go, wow, there, there are more people like me and they're hiding in plain sight. This is great. Yeah, I can imagine he completely fell in love with it. Yep. So he, he accompanies, this is where he now starts to accompany his brother on several burglaries. And he, this is where he learns from his brother how locks worked, mm. how to open windows and what to look out for. Alarms, security dogs, things like that, or just mm. dogs in general. So he's... He is now a sexual deviant that is uh, completely isolated, abuses substance, and now has the skills to burglarize, break into people's homes. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's a recipe for um, going to prison. Right. And doing a lot of harm, generally speaking, before you go. So he gets back to El Paso. He... This is this is the time now he actually drops out of school. He feels no oh, okay. need for for school, is failing ninth grade, and his father's so disappointed he just begins to beat him again. Mm-hmm. You're a failure, whatever. Then to add insult to injury, his cousin is released from prison. Yeah, and Richard starts spending time with him again. Mm-hmm. So this is where Richard gets arrested for the first time in 1977 for marijuana possession. Mm. He soon moves to California after this. So now we're looking at um, late 70s, early 80s, where he moves to California, progressing now from marijuana to cocaine. He's using cocaine to help him burglarize and cultivating his interest in Satanism. So the cocaine begins to fuel his psychosis. Mm -hmm. So he decides to go up to San Francisco and spend some time with a coven of devil worshipers. Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, he's trying to find his a family that makes sense to him. He does. Yeah, he is. I realize that it's a messed up way to do it, but and and I don't know the nature of the the coven and and all of that, but he's just trying to find a place where he belongs and feels quote unquote normal probably. Right. And here's the problem with that is due to his grandiosity he couldn't connect or he didn't want to stay long because when he met these people, he actually believed he was the only one who was supposed to carry out Satan's mission. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, when you started talking, I thought, oh, here it comes. Yeah. Where I'm trying to find family and I'm trying to find like-minded people, but I can't ever do that because I'm special. Right. So yeah, That's the narcissistic dilemma. Exactly. So he leaves... And his sister at this point is now Ruth begins to beg him to come home. Yeah. But he continues to tell her that he's protected by Lucifer. So he stays uh, in LA. He's arrested twice in LA um, for auto theft in 1981. And then again in 1984. 
So we noticeably begin, uh, he notice, noticeably begins to neglect his personal hygiene. This is when, when they describe Richard, he had rotten teeth, he didn't bathe, right? So this is where we start to see that decline. Um, after his arrest, his prints are now on file. The only thing is they're on file. They're not yet in a national database, which becomes We didn't have that yet. Right. But his prints are on file. So his parents would continue to pray that he would eventually see the light. But Richard never did and really only became worse with time. Yeah. So this is where I think we should probably stop. Okay. um, Because the next... Next week, we will get into the beginning of his crime and, and his killing spree. Yeah, it takes a different tack. Yeah. So we're going to take a break really quick, and we're going to come back and just um, have some wrap-up thoughts about this episode. We'll be right back. Hi there, we're back. So that's the meat of the first episode of this four-part series, which I'm really struck by how there are some similarities in what we see across, um, in particular, the gentleman we have uh, just that early spoken about violence that they're exposed to, the physical violence they're exposed to. Yeah, and the head injuries and the drug use for some, not for others. Some religious components, some major familial stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also, I, I'm also aware of the similarities of the, the narcissistic dilemma that they all find themselves in, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, narcissists don't always necessarily obviously become violent, right? but there's this narcissistic piece and then there's this violent psychopath piece Mm -hmm. that's developed out of the same... I don't know, similar sets of circumstances, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I'm trying to think if I had anything to add to that component because clearly there is a distinction between the two. And with R- Richard, I think there were genetic components to the psychopathy. Yeah, you were talking about the toxic exposure with the family and the stress. Is that what yeah, and just the, the lineage of violence yes. um, and malignancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that we talked about Kuklinski that way as well. Mm-hmm. Not as much with Dahmer and Bundy. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, and we're seeing in brain science that very early on, there's, yeah. you know, there's... Structural. It's not completely conclusive yet, but there yeah. are, you know... A lot of structural differences. Indicators that are starting to show that maybe in the future there'll be a, a brain, a way to predict, yeah. which is dangerous in and of itself and a different topic, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are you thinking about the next episode? What's up next? So we're going to be moving into now. This is where we start to talk about his criminal profile and his killings and, um, some of his first victims, how he, presented what he looked like he he's he develops this persona which we'll get into i'm going to talk about uh sexual sadism disorder a little bit oh, that'll be uh, interesting. we'll get into his methods of killing and why he was so hard to catch okay and then also into his psychological profile 
um, which will be a combination of, you know, environment and, and as well as genetic components, the diathesis stress model we'll talk about a little bit. And, and so it'll be much more focused on his profile. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we can uh, weave in what we've learned about his childhood and that obviously makes up a, a part, a portion of someone's overall profile Yeah. in a way, obviously context as we always talk about. (laughs) Context is important. Right. So thank you so much, Kathy. Um, we will, uh, please tune back in on Friday for the shrink chat show, which is going to be a lot lighter than this. I can tell you that. Um, and then over the next coming weeks for our Richard Ramirez episodes, we thank you so much for listening. This is Tara talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.